The Story of Psychology, with your host, Professor Todd, based on the work of Dr. C. George Borre, Part 2, The Rebirth. The Enlightenment. The 1600s were among the most exciting times for philosophy since ancient Athens. Although the power of religion was still immense, we begin to see pockets of tolerance in different places and at different times where a great mind could really fly. England was fairly tolerant, if only because of its diversity. Holland was the best place to be. A small country fighting off attacks, both military and economic, from every side, needed all the support that it could get, whatever your religion, denomination, or even heresy. The central issues were the same as those of the ancient Greeks. What is the world made of? How do we know anything for certain? What is the difference between good and evil? But they are now informed with centuries of science, literature, history, multicultural experiences, and, of course, written philosophy. Perhaps we have to admit that the modern philosophers are only elaborating on the ancient Greeks. But what an elaboration it was. So I will approach this era philosopher by philosopher, showing, I hope, the battles between materialism with Hobbes, and idealism with Berkeley, between empiricism with Locke and rationalism with Spinoza, the battle between faith with Leibniz and atheism with Pierre Bayle. Thomas Hobbes Thomas Hobbes was born April 5, 1588. His father, an Anglican clergyman, left the family when Thomas was still young. Fortunately, Thomas's older brother did well for himself, and he sent Thomas to Oxford. There, a young Thomas Hobbes served for a while as secretary to Francis Bacon. Traveling around Europe, he paid a visit to Galileo. He spent 11 years in Paris, and was tutor while in Paris to the exiled Prince of Wales, who would later become Charles II. In 1651, Thomas Hobbes wrote the book The Leviathan, a book presumably concerning politics, but covering much, much else besides. The book is named for a sea monster in the book of Job in the Bible. It was meant to be a symbol of God's power, but Hobbes used it to symbolize the state. Hobbes thought of himself as a scientist, but he was really more of a rationalist. Truth can be had if only we make sure to define our terms well and reason logically. But his conclusions were empiricistic. Nothing is in the mind that isn't first in the senses. This, in turn, led him to a pure materialism. All qualities are really matter in motion. 
things of the mind, such as memories and imagination, are just sense images decaying, and all in the form of matter in motion in the brain. Will, according to Hobbes, is just the last desire you have before you take action on it. Hence, free will is an absurdity. All motivation is selfish, and ultimately tied to survival. The basic negative emotion is fear. The basic positive emotion is desire for power. Good and bad are purely subjective matters. And so here he goes beyond Descartes. Not only are animals just machines, so too are we human beings. Perhaps not surprisingly, the psychologist B.F. Skinner was an admirer of Hobbes. Because good and bad are subjective, and because we are selfishly motivated, we will do whatever we need to do to satisfy our needs. Society must therefore control the individual if we are to have any peace at all. So, society develops systems of rewards and punishments, social approval and social censure. Leviathan, the commonwealth, is that necessary evil. Presaging Rousseau, Thomas Hobbes suggested that we submit to society in order to avoid a purely primitive life, which he characterized famously as nasty, brutish, and short. But, in contrast to Rousseau, Hobbes felt that society is an arrangement made between a ruler and the ruled, not among equals. So ultimately, the king must have absolute power for a civilization to survive. Democracy, Hobbes said, is just rule by orator demagogues who easily manipulate the mob. Religion, too, is a device for keeping the peace. It's nothing more than a fear of invisible powers that the mob has accepted as legitimate. Superstition is the same thing. It's just not accepted as legitimate. Now, I should note that Hobbes was not an atheist. He was, however, a deist, meaning that he believed in a deistic creator, an intelligent prime mover who started the world, but this creator doesn't need to intervene once the mechanical laws of nature take effect. When Hobbes returned to England, he found himself confronted by many critics. Fortunately for Hobbes, his old pupil, now King Charles II, took him in and set him up with a nice pension. Hobbes died December 4, 1679, at the age of 91. Benedictus Spinoza Baruch Spinoza was born in Amsterdam on November 24, 1632. His parents were Portuguese Jews who had escaped from the persecution they suffered in their homeland. Sadly, Spinoza's mother died when Baruch was only six. He received a religious education, but his father instructed him in various secular subjects in the hopes that Baruch would take on a career in business. 
Baruch became fluent in many languages and had a particular love for math, especially geometry. His father died in 1654, when Spinoza was 22. Discussing his belief with friends, he admitted to doubting many of their religious traditional beliefs, such as life after death. Well, they reported him to the synagogue soon after. After trying to persuade Spinoza to keep his opinions to himself, the rabbis excommunicated him in 1656. At that time, excommunication, Jewish or Christian, included the practice of shunning. No one in the community was to speak or correspond with him in any fashion. But Baruch, now called Benedictus, Latin for blessed, the same as the Hebrew Baruch, had many friends outside of the Jewish community, and they would protect him for all of his life. Nevertheless, he was forced to move to Rinsburg, a small town, in 1660 after a death threat, and again in 1663 to Vorburg near the Hague, and finally to the Hague itself. He supported himself throughout his life as a lensmaker. At this time, that occupation included not only the making of glasses, but also lenses for telescopes and microscopes, the latest things in technology. So Spinoza conducted a variety of experiments as well. Unfortunately, the constant exposure to glass dust was to take a toll on Spinoza's lungs. He published, anonymously, the Treatise on Theology and Politics in 1670. This was a devastating critique of biblical literalism and was immediately condemned by the religious community of Holland. His most important work, however, is the ethics. It was begun all the way back in 1662. He eventually tried to publish it in 1675, but was frightened off by rumors that his life would be in jeopardy if he did so. He died of tuberculosis two years later, February 20, 1677, at the age of 45. His friends, however, published the ethics and other unpublished works in his honor that same year. The full title of the book was Ethics, Demonstrated in the Fashion of Geometry, because he laid out his arguments in the same way that a mathematician might lay out a geometric proof. This is certainly a rigorous way of writing philosophy, but it does make it hard to read. According to Spinoza, Substance, that which underlies all reality, also known as existence or being, substance has two attributes, two sides, two aspects. If we look at reality from one angle, through the senses, we see reality as matter. But if we look at reality within ourselves, we experience it as thought. And so Spinoza suggested that there were an infinite number of aspects, but only those two are evident to us as human beings. So the body and the mind, or we could say the brain and the soul. The body and the mind are one. They are one in the same thing, but they're seen from two different perspectives. Where there is material activity, there is thought. 
where there is thought, there is material activity. Now, not all thought is available to what I perceive as myself. Much remains unconscious, but it goes on nonetheless. Now, this double aspectism may sound great, but it brings us around to panpsychism. Panpsychism is the idea that every material thing has a mental side to it, and vice versa. Every mental thing has a material side to it. People have minds. Animals have minds. Plants have minds. Even rocks and houses have minds. The earth, the physical earth, has a mind. Now, of course, as we move away from people, those minds are increasingly unconscious and increasingly lacking in a sense of self. But still, they exist. Everything in the physical world also has a mind. And this leads us to Spinoza's most famous concept, the one that he actually based his theory upon. God and nature are one. God and nature are the same thing and are identical with all of existence, both mental and physical. God is the mind of the universe. The universe is the body of God. Now, this is often called pantheism, the idea that God is everywhere and in everything. But in Spinoza's day, it was called atheism. Now, like Hobbes before him, Spinoza is also a mechanist. He believes only in determinism, not in free will. For us as human beings, this determinism comes in the form of desires, which derive from our need to survive. All things, Spinoza said, have the motive of self-preservation, a survival instinct, if you will. All things are selfish. And Spinoza says that we strive to increase our power, that is, to increase our capacity to preserve ourselves. And he identifies this power with virtue. So good is defined as what is useful to us, and the bad is what is damaging to us. Good advances our well-being. Bad decreases our well-being. Good we perceive as pleasure. Bad we perceive as pain. But we have many desires, and usually one outweighs the other, so we do what we desire most. But often, those desires conflict. This conflict itself decreases our well-being, and so we experience it as pain. So what can we human beings do then to make our lives less painful? Well, society helps to some extent. By providing rewards and punishment, praise and blame, society adds new items to our lists of desires. And those items may outweigh certain other desires or, or maybe support different desires. Ultimately, though, society instills a conscience in most of us. Spinoza saw conscience as learned, not innate. Ultimately, we must rely on ourselves. First, Spinoza says, we have to gain some control over our desires, because when our desires are out of control, they control us, and desire 
out of control, Spinoza called the passions. And passions are out of our control because they operate unconsciously, so they're not available to reason. But by getting a clear idea of the passions, we turn them into simple emotions. And emotions are amenable to reason. Sigmund Freud would say three centuries later that we must make the unconscious conscious. One way to turn a passion into an emotion, incidentally, is to trace its roots. If you can see where the passion came from, then its operations become clear, become conscious, and you can better deal with it. Another way to deal with passions is to see the necessity of things. Nature is what it is. God wills what he wills, and no one can change that. Surrender to the inevitable, and you will be much more peaceful. A wise person, for example, sees that getting angry at unpleasant people isn't going to change them. In fact, getting angry only hurts you. Being kind to others, on the other hand, is usually rewarded, and it takes much less out of you. So along with Buddha and Jesus, Spinoza said that love can conquer hate. He also said that wise people, and here's the quote, desire nothing for themselves, which they do not also desire for the rest of mankind, end quote. That's from his book, Ethics. This presages Kant's categorical imperative by about a century. But only an emotion can overcome another emotion. Therefore, reason must become an emotion, a powerful emotion, in order that the emotion of reason can outweigh the other emotions. Now, Spinoza calls this powerful emotion, quote, the intellectual love of God, end quote, which, of course, also implies a love of nature as well. It includes the acceptance of God's will or natural law. Knowledge of God slash nature is the ultimate virtue, the ultimate pleasure. Spinoza was dismissed by the English as an atheist. He was dismissed by the French as being too religious. But Schopenhauer would have a great influence on upcoming German philosophers, including Goethe, Hegel, Schopenhauer, and Friedrich Nietzsche. And it was in Germany where psychology was beginning to flourish. John Locke John Locke is sometimes called the father of the Enlightenment. He was born on August 29, 1632, the same year as Benedict Spinoza. John Locke's father was an attorney and a Puritan, and he taught young John the value of representation and religious freedom. John's father died of tuberculosis when John was 29, leaving him with a small inheritance. John Locke then went to Oxford. He received his master's degree and taught there. He later studied medicine and became the personal physician to the Earl of Shaftesbury, the grandfather to the philosopher 
of the same title. Beginning in 1675, Locke studied in France. And when he returned to England, he found the political climate there under James II a little less than congenial. And so he moved to Holland. And it was there that he wrote his great psychological work, An Essay Concerning Human Understanding. In 1689, John Locke returned to England after William and Mary took the throne from James II. There he published his works, the essay, and his two treatises on government, and two letters concerning the need for religious tolerance. In 1691, he retired to a friend's mansion, and there he died in 1704 at the age of 72. His treatises alone would assure him a place in history near the top. In them, he outlined the basics of representative government, including natural rights, the consent of the governed, the protection of property, religious tolerance, separation of church and state, and the checks and balances between executive and legislative branches. The ideas of John Locke would become foundational for the Declaration of Independence, also the American Constitution, and especially the Bill of Rights, as well as the French Declaration of the Rights of Man. In short, you cannot understand the philosophical underpinnings of the American Constitution without understanding the ideas of John Locke. Unlike Hobbes, who grew up in a time of constant warfare, John Locke saw people as having a positive nature, one that contained instincts for social good and the ability to reason. Some of Locke's optimism about humanity might also be because he grew up in a time of peace. According to Locke, since our nature is positive, we should allow ourselves and others the freedom to develop that nature. And for this reason, we must each surrender some degree of freedom in order that others may likewise be free to develop their potentials. Laws are created not to keep us from destroying each other, but to allow us to express our positive, rational natures. And so a government is legitimate only if its laws promote that which is our nature, to be free and to be rational. And laws can only do this if they are based upon the consent of the governed. So, if Hobbes reminds you of B.F. Skinner, John Locke should remind you of Carl Rogers. John Locke's essay concerning human understanding attacked another popular idea of his time. Many scholars believed that the idea of God and the ideas of good and evil were planted in our minds at birth, perhaps by God himself. It was said that these ideas were innate. But when John Locke looked at the variety of beliefs, non-beliefs, moralities that existed in the world, he concluded that these things could not possibly be innate. There was too much variation, too much difference from one group of people to the next. Now, in denying the existence of innate ideas, 
Locke admitted, of course, that there are reflexes and instincts and the like. But he said that those were just physiological sequences of movement. Reflexes are not ideas. Now, there are some ideas which are learned from experience and are learned so early and reinforced so consistently that they have the appearance of being innate. They feel like they're innate. We reflect upon our own experience and think, I've always thought this, always believed that. But that is only an appearance. In the course of arguing that there are no innate ideas, John Locke sets the stage for two future arguments, which will be taken up by George Berkeley and David Hume. First, Locke notices that if we try to find matter, we see nothing but the qualities that we attribute to matter. We never find matter itself. So the idea of matter is not empirical. And this idea would be elaborated on by George Berkeley. Secondly, Locke notices that if we try to find mind, all we see are the qualities that we attribute to mind. Never do we see empirically any mind at all. And this idea would be elaborated by David Hume. John Locke, however, will not make the leaps that Berkeley and Hume will. He was far too practical for that. But he does say that we are correct in believing in matter and believing in mind. In fact, life makes little sense without them. And yet, matter and mind are not empirically verifiable. Now, Locke is sometimes called a metaphysical agnostic. In other words, he believes that there is mind and there is matter and that they do interact somehow, but no one can prove their existence. John Locke's ideas were adopted enthusiastically by French philosophers as well as English and American thinkers, and they would translate him into a revolutionary and his philosophy of human nature into sensationalism and mechanism. In our next lecture, we will continue our exploration of the Enlightenment, looking at the work and writings of George Berkeley, Gottfried Leibniz, and Pierre Bayle.